0: A
1: strange spiralling white light was spotted in the early morning sky over Sydney with even
2: sceptical witnesses wondering if it was a UFO. They were last seen on the beach with a tall man and that's the best description police have ever had of him. More than
3: 17 years after Harold Holt disappeared into raging surf at Cheviot Beach his widow has finally revealed his last romantic words.
0: "Docking, terrifying, mesmerising. That's
1: the way a number of Australians have described their alleged encounter with the Yowie. It's time for the Weird Crap in Australia
2: podcast. Welcome to the Weird Crap in Australia podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Sowell. Joining me is a fellow host and a researcher extraordinaire, Holly Soul. G'day, g'day how's everyone doing out there hot (laughs) it is a very very fucking hot today we went from we're burning to we're fucking hot now (laughs) yes uh so we've had to obviously we turn off all the air conditioning in our home in order to do the podcast so uh we are suffering for the love of the art And art through adversity, that's what they always say.
3: If that's what you want to call it.
2: (laughs) Now, we're delving into Australia's archaeological history today. Uh, With episode 88, we're talking about the Lake Mungo remains. Now, it's not just about the unearthing of a skeleton of an ancient man. It's also a very interesting subject because of the political back and forth uh, that occurred uh, between not only the scientific community, but also the government, conservation efforts, uh, as well as the traditional owners of Lake Mungo. So it's a very interesting story, and uh, we're going to take it from the top.
3: Lake Mungo is in New South Wales, in the World Heritage-listed Willandra Lakes region, one of 17 lakes within the zone. It's a dry lake in southwest New South Wales, 90 kilometers northeast of Mildura. That's where I used to live. It's located in the middle of the Mungo National Park, and the lake sediments there are more than 100,000 years old in some places. There are three layers of sediment around the lake. You've got the 100 to 120,000-year-old Golgol, which is red. It's literally a layer of red. You have 15 to 25-year-old Mungo, which is grey. That's the layer that we're mainly going to talk about today. And we have the 25 to 15 Zanke, which is tan or brown. It's a really cool look if you actually get a chance to see a cross-section. It's like really nice layers. The Willandra Lakes are part of the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, Most Australians will know that as being one of the biggest water areas in Australia, though it doesn't really hold much water at the moment. The Mungo layer was deposited before the last Ice Age. Now, this layer corresponds to an era of low rainfall and cooler weather, when the lake was filled with stormwater runoff from the Great Dividing Range. Fossils of animals and signs of human population abound within the layer, making it an absolute goldmine. When the water level dropped during the Ice Age, the lake became salty, which is associated in preserving the remains found there. Fossils include Zygomatorus, which is a small diprotodon, Protocoptagon, which is a short-faced kangaroo, and one of the big flightless birds that I'm not going to bother trying to pronounce.
2: Gerionus.
3: Damn it, Jerry Ornus. I don't know why that was so hard in my brain.
2: Especially for you, considering you're the ancient animal. I just went through two longer words. Yeah, and and you like your ancient animals and things like that. Uh, Of course, if you would like to know more about any of those that we mentioned there, you can go all the way back to our episode on megafauna, which was episode 33.
3: The oldest known signs of people at the Willandra Lakes are about 45,000 years old recorded in the forms of campsites and middens. Now, middens are basically garbage pits where you used to put your bones and your shells and things like that. There was no cross-pollination of megafauna in the campsites, meaning or implying that the local Aboriginal people did not eat the megafauna.
2: As we've discussed previously, it's often been suggested that the megafauna went extinct because of the Overhunting. overhunting by the Aboriginal people. But that's one of those things where it goes back and forth between the people of the scientific community as to whether that's correct or not. Uh, As we've mentioned, we, at the time, a lot of the megafauna started disappearing. We looked at a couple of things. Climate change was one of those Mm -hmm. factors. The fact that they were so big, big animals, often hard to sustain as far as their eating and breeding habits some of these animals also bred very, very scarcely. Once
3: every three, four years.
2: Yeah. So it's uh, it's one of those things where it's probably not one one individual in particular. It's probably a couple of different factors all coming together.
3: According to the Middens, the local populations actually subsisted on shellfish, yabbies, fish, wallabies, betongs, which are a type of rat kangaroo, bandicoots, native rats, and bilbies. The tiny little Easter bilby was eaten by the Aboriginal peoples. <laughs> I don't like it.
2: Well, you got to eat. you, you got to eat, eat something. To yeah.
3: Uh, we have a quote here from Jim Bowler, the man who discovered these remains.
2: On 5th of July 1968, I recorded and photographed the deposit of burnt carbonate-encrusted bones within the Mungo unit. This deposit in the form of a calcite block undergoing disgeneration after exposure on the deflated, deflation surface was thought to contain food bones burnt by early man. Its location within the Mungo unit provided presumptive evidence of human occupation of great antiquity, thereby establishing it an important evidence. I marked the site with an iron peg and left it intact for detailed excavation by archaeologists. That was Jim Bowler from 2010 talking about discovery of the Mungo site.
3: Yeah, he's not a paleontologist or an archaeologist as such. He's actually a geologist. So he was going out there looking for pretty rocks. Yep. Jim Bowler was digging in Lake Mungo sand dunes under a grant from the University of Melbourne. Now, he and his team discovered LM1, colloquially known as Mungo Lady, in the Mungo layer there.
2: Now, and that's that's the burnt remains that we were just yes. discussing in the quote.
3: She was dated to between twenty-four point seven thousand and nineteen point oh three thousand years ago. This still makes her relatively young in the Australian landscape. She was found with stone tools, hearths, and faunal remains scattered around her, kind of like you would see if you walked into an Egyptian tomb.
2: Mm. Now, this was very important. Uh, it was very important not only to archaeologists, but it was also important to the Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. Not in the way you would expect, though. The, these bones and being able to carbon date them uh, would eventually help uh, establish how long, or at least partly how long, the Aboriginal people would be here. Uh, but we'll talk a bit more about that later on.
3: A charcoal hearth was found 15 centimetres above the burial, leading some scientists to begin speculating. Preservation of the remains is poor because, of course, they were burnt. Also adding to speculation by the academic community. According to analysis, Mungo Lady was burned and her bones were smashed, with another fire set again afterwards, which, as most people would kind of recognize, is the basic form of cremation, an intentional burial. Now, this is unusual because up to that point in time, there was no knowledge of cremation for ancient Aboriginal women. They were typically found buried without much ceremony.
2: So there have been, of course, at that time, looking at 1960s, 1970s, -hmm. They considered them a nomadic peoples because the Aboriginal peoples that were often encountered were nomadic themselves. And they didn't assign a society to them. They didn't Although assign... Well, they campsites, not yeah, towns or they, cities. They didn't assign practices to them and things like that. They were a wandering people. However, that kind of allowed people at the time to be very dismissive of them as a culture. Mm-hmm. You know, it sort of allowed people to go, okay, well... If they're just constantly moving around and their language differs between each tribe, and they don't really have a written language, then we'll write them off as a culture.
3: Well, this is the very, very end tale of the Stolen Generations era.
2: Yeah, exactly right. However, this changes perceptions because mm-hmm. this is a ceremony, this is a burial rite. There are there's objects around her, so it ch- it it was the first step in changing the way that the Australian scientific community and the general public started thinking of the Aboriginal people.
3: Very limited information was published before the bones were repatriated to local Aboriginal tribes. Now, I am going to try and pronounce these guys, uh, the Patakji, the Muthi Muthi, and the Ngamba in 1992. Some casts and other information sets were created, which is where most of the information known about Mungo Lady comes from. Mungo Lady herself currently lives in a locked vault at the Mungo Park Exhibition Center, where she's protected by two locks. One key for the safe is in the hand of archaeologists, while the other is held by the local Aboriginal peoples, giving them a degree of equality in this situation that is very rarely seen, especially in this
2: era. Yeah. Uh, So, it's interesting you talk about this. Of course, uh, you have three different peoples here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this often happens. We've discussed this before where different Aboriginal tribes uh, will each claim the same area. Uh, and usually that's a bit of a political situation for the, the tribes involved to mm-hmm. deal with. Um, but it usually means like it, that area had significance to three different peoples at the time.
3: Well, at this point in time, you got to remember them Lake Mungo was a water source, so you were naturally going to get more than one pe- people yep. there.
2: Uh, now, actually getting Mungo Lady back was, uh, it was a bit... It was a bit of a battle for the uh, the peoples who uh, claim Mungo as their own side. Mm-hmm. Uh, extensive letter-writing campaigns, negotiating with the Australian government, uh, because Mungo Lady, uh, she sat for a long, long time at uh, Canberra. Mm-hmm. She was at the National Museum, or was it ANU?
3: It was the, the ANU.
2: ANU. So they, uh, the traditional owners of the land, of course, they wanted uh, their ancestor returned to the site of her burial. And it's a very interesting case. The, the only sort of thing that I can think of uh, that is similar to that is, of course, the uh, exposure of uh, Native American sites. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one in particular that was a, a huge amount of contention there because they actually built a sort of a historical site over it and they sort of exposed the skeletons. This was over in, uh, over in America. And it took a long, long time for the Native American population there to actually have those bones uh, reburied and uh, a ceremony performed there to uh, to I don't know what the term is to give Settle them peace the spirit, in the afterlife, sell the spirit. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it. Um, the issue here is, and and this comes up a lot in archaeology, uh, is the bones have to sort of be old enough, mm-hmm. you know. If there is a living memory uh, of the people, if the people still exist, if it's only separated by about 20,000 years, you'll often find that there will be uh, massive amounts of pushback uh, when it comes to scientists digging up uh, those sort of bones. Um, Just because it's still part of the conscious memory, Uh, when people started unearthing Egyptian tombs, well, the Egyptians had been gone for, what, Holly? 2,000 years. Two thousand years. Yeah, really.
3: Yeah, the Egyptian settlement died out in thirty one BC. Well, the, as Egyptians, they were amalgamated into the Roman Empire. Well,
2: I suppose the people was gone. Yeah, like the the, the Egy- culture
3: itself was dead.
2: Yeah, the culture's dead. I think that's the important thing. If the culture is dead, uh, then that's when you can sort of go in as scientists and sort of no one's going to give you any pushback. But if the culture is still living, and if there are people who are still practicing that you will generally get this back and forth pushback.
3: If you try and dig up a Christian burial site, they will kick up a massive stink. But if you try and dig up an, well, I hesitate to say Inca, but if you dig up a Neolithic site, for example, Stone Age Man, no one's going to care. They're just going to be more interested in the measurements and the yes. data.
2: Yeah. So that's that's what happens there. Uh, but Mungo Lady was returned. And mm-hmm. it was around this point when she was returned uh that uh, they were trying to reclaim i think it was around 150 different aboriginal ancestors that had either been taken from mungo or other areas there was a uh, a big push uh that number comes from a radio series that i listened to called bones of contention uh that was produced by the abc by a guy named daniel browning i think it was either it was 105 or 150 somewhere around that number uh, that they were trying to have returned back to the site.
3: Um it's also around the era of Mabo. This is the era where Uluru is being returned and signed on a 99 year lease for the Europeans, that kind of thing. So at this point in time in 1992, you do have a lot of interest. Literally Mabo, 3rd of June 1992. You literally have a lot of interest in repatriating a lot of aboriginal culture back to the people.
2: Yeah. Um but yeah, so that's that's the story of Mungo Lady.
3: We have another quote here from Jim Bella, Matthew.
2: We had not come prepared for an eva- excavation evacuation. I mean, kind fire of, on your yeah. We had not come prepared for an excavation and yet here before us was a feature which could contain the oldest human bones so far discovered in Australia. The field identification was hasty and speculative, being based on two burnt fragments of paratial and mandible, and it was By no means certain that a later careful examination would confirm it. So basically what he's saying there is, holy shit, we may have found one of the oldest bones, one of the oldest set of remains in Australia. We have to take it, but there's no guarantee that it is. Yeah. You know, so it was a roll of the dice.
3: Information on the burial was mainly composed and assessed by Alan Thorne of the ANU, who was actually present during the initial discovery of the remains, and he helped to identify them as human. Mungo Lady is one of the oldest sets of anatomically modern human remains found in Australia. They are one of the big Aboriginal ancestors. Because of the situation in which the body was found, it was theorised that the body was cremated. If so, this implies that the body is one of the first known examples of cremation, including around the world. Wow. If true, this implies... Well,
2: what about the Vikings, though? Didn't they cremate...
3: Vikings were in the 12th and 13th century AD, sweetheart.
2: We'll see, I don't know. I'm not a historian.
3: <laughs> they're they're late-era <laughs> Europeans, I know. Yeah. Now, if true, this information implies that ritualistic burial was present in human communities very long ago. Another quote, Matthew.
2: The burnt and calcrete? Calcrete. Calcrete. What's calcrete? Calcium. Okay, so that's all Basically it is. Basically Yeah, calcium. Covered human bones were at the extreme southeast end of these hearths and about 15 yards away from the nearest one. We think that the artefacts, the hearths, and the human bones are all different manifestations of the same archaeological site. This was a transient lakeshore settlement. The inhabitants camping using stone tools and burning their dead on the sandy beach, and a dune a few yards from the water's edge.
3: So there you have, just within those last three quotes, you have a massive evolution of the way that they're starting to think about the Aboriginal people. They go from the transient people to this is where they lived and camped and hunted.
2: Yeah, this is a permanent site for them. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
3: Mungo Man was discovered the 26th of February, 1974 by Bala. He never left. He kept going, seeing what he could find, and he ended up finding another person. He was sifting sand dunes when he found the exposed remains. Now, Lake Mungo Man is designated LM3, and he was found 500 meters to the east of Mungo Lady. Mungo man was laid out in his right side with care, his knees bent and his hands positioned over his groin, fingers interlocked.
2: What does that symbolise? Is that just to protect like is It means that you have
3: to dig a smaller hole? That's about the only thing I can theorise, but I'm not an archaeologist.
2: I just thought like the hands over the groin could mean something like Well, it means you can keep the body together. I suppose so, yeah. Might be easier that way.
3: I know in Egypt they laid him on their side and faced him towards the rising sun, but I don't know of any significance in the
2: Aboriginal community. But if you uh, you do know the answer to yeah, that please question. Let me know. Yeah, let us know via Facebook.
3: The remains of a fire was found beside him. Now this was not a cremation type fire. This was more this is your last campfire kind of thing. His body was sprinkled with red ochre in a funerary rite, the oldest known example of a sophisticated burial practice in Australia. Now, this rite has specific importance to the local Aboriginal tribes as it is a concrete connection to their burial traditions lasting more than 40,000
2: years. Yeah, so this is really important here. You have one of the oldest uh, Aboriginal specimens. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is... I'm going to try and break down the importance here. Um, So for a lot of people uh, who look at the... they, They look at the... Mungo Man and his taking away and being brought back, they actually see it as the spirits, the spirits exposed the skeleton for the scientists, so they could date it, and then that once they dated it, that gave more significance to the Aboriginal people. Some uh, people to this day, and you can hear that in the the Bones of Con- Contention program, they interview a couple of them. Their belief is that the spirits opened up the earth. To expose Mungo Man so that the scientific community would have to acknowledge how old the Aboriginal people are and how long they've been in the country. I can understand the logic. For them, it created this uh, massive push for legitimacy uh, and it helped to really legitimise not only... Uh, the fact that they had been around for such a long time, but they were an active social community. The red okra, for example, is very, very significant because that would have had to have been tracked from quite a substantial way away in order to be buried with Mungo Man, which goes into the importance of who he was. Uh, there's, There's a lot of significance there to track... All those funerary bits and pieces to the site to bury him with it uh, suggests that he was probably a leader or he was a a spiritual advisor, but whatever he was, he was incredibly important to the community. Um, So for a lot of them, even though it's very heartbreaking, I'm sure, to see... Their ancestors pulled from the ground and sent to a research facility, and eventually, you know, through a letter-writing campaign, they're able to sort of bring him back. Spoilers a little bit later, sorry about that, but, you know, that's how it has to go. Um, to have him come back that way, it helped legitimize their entire peoples.
3: They suddenly had a concrete peg on which to mark their land. Yeah, they could say- mark the- their life
2: this is our history. This is our legitimate history. Uh, this is a demonstration of our society. This is a demonstration of how long we have been on this country for. Um, and yeah, so it, it was massive uh, for both sides. Like the scientific community were very excited. Uh, but it's interesting to listen to some of the Aboriginal elders on that, that radio program who were happy with the way like obviously it was very trying for them and very difficult to try and get those remains repatriated but they still saw it in a light of like well the spirits did this for us so that we could find legitimacy uh, in a culture that really didn't want to give us legitimacy and i can definitely i i like I'm not a spiritual person, as people know, um, but that kind of spirituality is the kind of spirituality that I can dig. I think it's pretty cool.
3: Mungo Man's remains were removed from their burial site and taken to ANU, Australian National University, where they remained for decades easily accessible for study by the academic community. Mungo Man's discovery changed the academic estimations of the timeline of Aboriginal culture As at the time of discovery, it was estimated that the Aboriginal population arrived in Australia 20,000 years before. That's a timeline that lines up really well with Mungo Lady. Yep. Not with him. Yep. Now, his discovery put their arrival back to more than 50,000 years previous.
2: It's a... a substantial amount of time for a people to be on one continent. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
2: You know, people who like to decry the Aboriginal people go, oh, you know, they they just walked across from Papua New Guinea, and of course their ancestors did, but their ancestors may have done that 50,000 to 100,000 years ago. It's a substantial amount of time for one people to be on one continent.
3: At the same time that the Aboriginal people were arriving in Australia... The Ice Age people of Europe were still trying to work out fire. Yeah. That's the developmental level we're at here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always good to keep context.
2: Yeah. It's, well, here's an even greater number. I mean, we've talked about the first uh, European uh, settlers arriving in Australia. What? That's 100, 200 Two, years? 240,
3: 238, 232. There right. you go. Maths on the fly. European
2: (laughs) Australians have been here for 232 years. Aboriginal Australians have been on the continent for at least 50,000 years.
3: 48,000 BC. That's what number we're looking at here, people. It's
2: a substantial amount of time for a culture. Would it be fair to say that there aren't many cultures that have actually stayed on the same continent for that amount of time, Holly? Uh,
3: Good luck finding one that's even stuck around for more than five.
2: Yeah. I think, like, what, uh, Native American people or the Incans? Would,
3: the Native American people, yes. The Inca, not so much because of this, they evolved out of different civilizations. They are not yep. the same civilization.
2: Right. But, yeah, probably- Native the,
3: Americans are probably the only other people that could lay claim to this.
2: And, of course, like, uh, people who still live on the African continent. Like, African- Africans would be able to trace. Africa. Like, yeah. we're not
3: talking South South Africa sitting in Johannesburg, Africa here. We're talking maybe sub-Saharan, maybe Kenyan. I'm not yep. too up on, like, African culture to be able to make a definitive statement on this. Yeah,
2: But you can understand why I said earlier that this was so significant for the Aboriginal people and the belief that the spirits opened up the earth to demonstrate to... Um, white Australia, for lack of a better term, Uh, it demonstrated to them just how long the Aboriginal people have been here. And it it just, it gave their peoples a massive amount of significance.
3: Well, it didn't just give them significance, it gave them legitimacy.
2: Yeah. Which is what
3: the Europeans have been denying them for a very, very long time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And no doubt we're going to get calls on our leftist agenda, but I'm sorry you can't argue. This is fact. Yeah, (laughs) this is fact. This is carbon dating, you know.
3: When Mungo Man was discovered, his age was estimated through a strata comparison to Mungo Lady, who was, of course, found less than half a kilometre away.
2: But they had a massive time difference between the two.
3: Now, his initial estimation was, of course, between 28 and 32,000, because that's what happens when you compare it to a younger sample. In 1987, however, an electron spin resonance test on bone fragments indicated that he was closer to 31,000, give or take 7,000. So at the highest end, they're going at this point 38, which is still not quite there, but we're getting closer.
2: Um, this isn't carbon dating, though. No, or- this
3: no. this is some f- types of carbon dating, but it's not specific. Some of it's carbon dating the land around his bones. Yep which is going to be different if you've buried him because they're going to be different to the actual strata that he's buried in. Some of them are taking electrons and stuff from the bones themselves and te- checking them. It's not specifically carbon, but it takes the same principle.
2: Yep. Yeah, there's, uh, there's two ways you can test. And uh, sorry, scientists out there, if I butcher <laughs> We're this. are going to fuck this. <laughs> I will do my best here. Uh, so carbon dating, uh, what you're checking for is the carbon levels in the fragments themselves. So right now in our history, uh, there's a massive amount of carbon, okay?
3: I'm already going to have to stop you and fix this explanation. Would you like me to do this for you? Go for it. Every life on Earth absorbs carbon at exactly the same rate, whether it's a plant, whether it's an animal, whether it's anything. Things that are non-inanimate, so minerals and stuff like that, they don't take in carbon because they don't absorb carbon. What happens is carbon has what's called a half-life, so every set amount of years, half of it dies, and then set amount of years later, half of that dies, In order to carbon date something, you see how much carbon is in it, and then you work your maths backwards until you get the normal living level of carbon. And that tells you how many years that it's been here.
2: Well, that's where I was getting to. I was going (laughs) to- You were going all weird. (laughs) So, yeah, each era, of course, has different amounts of carbon.
3: No, life itself absorbs carbon at exactly the same rate.
2: Yeah, yeah, but what I'm saying is that when they're doing their walk back- that's how you like you look at carbon levels. Like they when they looked at the carbon levels that are in Antarctica, for example. This was how lead uh, petrol uh, got stopped when they switched to unleaded. Uh, they actually could see the amount of carbon in those. Um, uh, sorry, the amount of lead. Sorry, in those crystals. What you're
3: thinking of is actually the carbon levels in the air, not the carbon levels in the organics. They're two different types of carbon.
2: Oh well, there you go then. I've actually looked into this because I... I Holly's a big history nerd. I'll just stick to my Batman stuff. Um, You are
3: right when it comes to dating, like, minerals.
2: But the... uh, Mine is organics. Electromagnetic, that is radiation levels, isn't it? Yeah. That makes sense, let me put it that way. Yeah, we could be wrong on that. But, yeah, Holly's definitely right on the carbon. In
3: 1988, the skeleton of a child believed to be a contemporary of Mungo Man was also discovered. Investigation of the remains was blocked by local Aboriginal elders, and efforts were made to rema- protect the remains in situ. Now that means where they lay. This skeleton is known as Mungo Child, and very little is known about them.
2: Do you? It's interesting. Like at the moment, um, there is I, I don't know. Like I listen to this program, uh, Bones of Contention, and I'd, I'd, I highly recommend it. It was very good. It gave me a, a basis for the whole sort of story. Um, that was produced in Saturday, 13th of October, 2018, mm-hmm. which is not too long ago. It was only like a couple of years a year ago. A and a bit. Yeah. Uh, they were talking about having um, a research center built mm-hmm. at Mungo um, and they were also talking about having an education center as well built there. So, um, you know, education centers are wonderful things because you can travel kids in and then if they're conducting research as well, they can actually do it. Um, within the realm of, like, making sure that uh, the Aboriginal people there who are the custodians of the remains of that land, they're doing it ethically Mm -hmm. um, according to Aboriginal beliefs.
3: There's oversight.
2: But I don't think there's ever been – like, there's – I don't think there's been a push, which really annoys me, uh, because from a historical point of view and being an Australian, um, this is substantial – Like, I can't understand why uh, there hasn't been uh, money allocated to build a proper research centre. And what I love about the idea of it as well is you can have, you know, the Aboriginal people working with the scientific community and they can come together on a joint project where everyone is happy. Um, And a lot of them want to do that.
3: Aboriginal culture is mostly oral-based, so you would actually have research material for want of a better word working alongside you to help you contextualize the remains that you're finding and the data that you're getting you have their histories that you can then apply to the context
2: Mm. but what blows my mind is there are both people within the scientific community and the aboriginal community both want this to happen Mm -hmm. and yeah there doesn't seem to be any push for it
3: of course not it won't make money
2: it doesn't have it's our heritage that's it's humanity it doesn't make money you know? matthew it's a it's the cradle of it's one of the cradles of civilization like it should be investigated uh, especially when you got two groups who really do want to work together mm-hmm. and and i know like that is me being hyperbolic because of course I'm sure, I'm sure there are scientists who are like, just get out of the fucking way. I don't care about your spiritual beliefs. I just want to, we want the the raw data on this. And I'm sure there are people within the uh, Aboriginal communities within Mungo who are also like, don't touch it at all. We don't want you anywhere near it. We don't want you to touch it. But there are definitely a huge amount of people on both sides who want to work together to understand this side.
3: Yeah, cultural understanding is very underrated and undervalued and I, for one, 100% endorse it
2: yeah so yeah there is the the, that active push
3: okay we have another quote from mr Matthew.
2: some nine years later 1978 friendly dialogue led to the signing of an historical accord a collaborative agreement between the two groups scientists and traditional owners each learning from the other that agreement holds to this present day and that's what i love about it i i really do like this isn't a sad story And it it could have been, Mm -hmm. and that—that's the thing. It could have been like, I know that there are still Aboriginal remains in the British Museum Mm -hmm. that they've been trying to get back to Australia for a long time.
3: To be honest, though, lots of people have been trying to get shit out of the British Museum for a very long time. Mm.
2: But they want to rebury them. Yeah, you know, they don't want them there in in Britain, Um, especially because some of them may be quite recent as well. Like they're not necessarily. Um, older remains. They might have
3: been walking around when the Europeans rocked up.
2: Yeah, so there's there's a push to have those those returned, but, but yeah, it, in this case, like it could have been one of those stories where it's like they they fight back and forth forever and it never gets resolved. But these two groups actually come together quite comfortably, uh, and they start negotiating. They start working on terms. Um, they start repatriating remains.
3: In 1999, a thermoluminescence dating test on the quartz sand from the burial site indicated that the burial itself occurred sometime between 24.6 and 43,000 years ago. So we're pushing back another 5,000 years on our estimate.
2: Keeps getting longer and longer and longer.
3: Yeah. In 2003, Bowler and a team of Australian experts employed by four universities, the CSIRO, New South Wales Parks and Wildlife Service, as well as descendants of Mungo tribesmen, collaborated on a final stage for the skeleton. Now, they eventually reached a consensus of a maximum of 50,000 years, with a much more likely age of 40. This actually makes Mungo man the second oldest modern human skeleton east of India. And the only other thing we've got that's older is one single jawbone. Mm. So he is the most complete
2: Yes. Oldest. Mungo Man is 100% complete, as well as his burial accoutrement is with him. Mm-hmm. You don't know.
1: Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere In that
2: case, I pronounce you lucky.
3: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily
1: bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: What accoutrement, that's just a fancy word for things. Stuff. Stuff. Um, He is intact. And and the fact that the ochre itself had to be traveled in from such a long distance. Like, there's just a, a huge amount to learn from this one intact specimen. And it is, you know, again, I can understand why they think that it, it's a spiritual thing that it's like the earth, the Australia itself preserved him and then rose him to the surface when the Aboriginal people needed him the most.
3: Does that make him a superhero? <laughs> uh,
2: I mean, it's just, it was really interesting listening to Bones of Contention and the love they have for him. Um, you know the way they talk about him and you know you sort of I get it. Like I understand the perspective on it.
3: Well, remember, Aboriginal culture as far as I understand it is that everybody is related. Mm. You are in direct contact with your ancestors and the spirits of the land and the sky and everything else. Mm. I might be falsely equating that with North American Indians now I think about it. Well, Sorry, I mean North a lot American of American
2: peoples. A lot of spiritual cultures have, you know, those sort of similar through lines. Um, but yeah, the the way they talked about him, and they're like, oh, you know, when again, when we needed we needed legitimacy uh, to help establish our people, to help us fight for our rights, he popped up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a clip here. You want yes, to set this did. up?
3: Um, so I don't actually remember what the clip is. You want to play it and then I'll do it? <laughs> I did here's, this a few days ago. Okay.
2: Here's the clip. This man proved to the world that. It was a ritual burial, and therefore, we had a religion. And to be buried, and to be a man of stature, and among a lady, a woman of stature, and to be buried with such ceremony, mean that we also had a social structure. And so, you can't draw any other conclusion that we had a vibrant society So, that
3: was one of the speakers at the repatriation ceremony at the ANU for Mungo Man. I remember
2: that clip now. And to be honest, you you can't. Like, it demonstrates absolute society. It demonstrates burial practices. You You just can't can't argue argue with with it. it. Yeah.
3: Information on Mungo Man is rather more plentiful than that of Mungo Lady. Mungo Man was a man of about 50 years old when he died.
2: Which is not too bad for that era of human like, 50 years old is well, probably a very old man.
3: Remember I was talking to you and scientists had found- I do you ex- talked to
2: me. When have you ever talked to me?
3: The expir- expiry date within DNA of humans, it's 38. Yeah. So, if you pass 38 years old, congratulations, you passed your expiry date. <laughs> yeah,
2: you're an elder. You're yep. a very ancient person. Um, I mean, it's not unprecedented, but, I mean, to live that age with, you know, only tribal medicines and things like that- It's a big deal. Very big deal.
3: Now, this was all estimated based on the signs of osteoarthritis and tooth wear on his bones. Substantial portions of the skeleton were missing due to preservation problems, which is actually more to do with him being crushed by the weight of the earth than anything else. Parts of the skull were missing and most of the outer limbs were damaged, but most of the finger bones were still there. So they could still see what, you know, fingers interlocked. You have to have finger bones Mm. to know that. It was initially difficult to work out the gender of the bones as the pelvis was damaged and most of the skull was missing. Those are the two signs that they generally use when they're dating a skeleton. There's a
2: joke I can make there about male and female brains, but I won't do that.
3: That's because you know ours are bigger.
2: (laughs) I know you'll kick my ass if I make that joke. That's why I'm not going to make that joke. The rest of the
3: skeleton was assessed with morphological... features compared to modern aboriginal skeletons and the conclusion was reached that the skeleton belonged to an aboriginal elder man who is estimated to have been 1.96 meters tall that that's is ridiculously tall even for a yeah, modern that, aboriginal that's person
2: that's not bad i mean i'm uh i'm 1.8 mm-hmm So So he'd still be
3: taller
2: than you. Yeah, he's substantially taller than me. Um, If you take
3: Europeans from that era, they are nowhere near that size.
2: Yeah, so I'm 181 centimeters tall. He's uh, 196 centimeters tall. So that's a very another what's that 15
3: centimeters? Another five inches? Yeah, taller than you.
2: um, Now that's substantial because that actually talks about their nutrition at the time. Uh, Height and nutrition go hand in hand. Good nutrition, you're going to usually have taller, bigger people. That's mm-hmm. that's just sort of the way it works. Uh, also, bad nutrition leads to that, but you get bigger in the tummy space.
3: Yeah, and it's not is, a good reason.
2: Which is what's happening at the moment around the world, uh, including myself. But I'm trying to get rid of the tummy. So what happens here is that uh, with really good nutrition, you start getting very tall people. Now, it could be that he was just abnormally tall for his population group, but I would imagine that would give him more significance. Which being is probably a why he survived man. longer. And it also probably suggests why he was either a tribal leader or maybe a priest or not a priest. What were they? What, a shaman? I, d- I don't know what they were. I don't
3: know what they called them. Yeah, I think yeah. elder just encapsulates all of it. Yeah.
2: Elder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah elder is the, the term they use a lot. So that would probably be why he was so significant. But yeah, that's very tall.
3: Now, because this is unusually tall from modern Aboriginal Australians, some scientists do theorise that they messed up their maths. (laughs) However, they haven't gone back to check it. So, at the moment, officially he's 196 until someone comes back and says no.
2: But I couldn't imagine he would be significantly less, like, even if you go down into the 180s, that's still a very tall person for the era.
3: Well, when they're estimating animal bones they used the femur and they had both femurs so surely if they've got both of the significant bones they use for height they'd be able to estimate it properly yeah but i don't know what the process was at that point in time so Mungo man's dna was tested for mitochondrial dna in 2001 now mitochondrial is the line that goes through the mother now it was found his dna had more than the expected number of sequential differences to modern humans His DNA is used to prop up the theory of waves of immigration of the local Aboriginal populations rather than a single arrival, with both political and scientific controversies cropping up around this theory.
2: All right, so explain this to me when they they talk about migration and they're talking about people continually coming from Papua New Guinea to Australia. Yeah,
3: three or four different waves of people arriving, not just one boat full of people landed and then spread their way across the continent.
2: Right. Why And why is this controversial with um, with people?
3: Well, it lessens... In terms of the Aboriginal people that I was reading, it lessens their claim because it could mean that some of them are only 20,000 while some of them are almost 60.
2: Yeah, but if so- you... If you-
3: it also means that their culture has been diluted, in mm. inverted commas, through these new waves of people coming in.
2: I, I suppose it makes it a bit tricky, like, just because of how many different tribes there were, how many different languages, uh, all that sort of stuff. I mean, that waves of immigration sort of, for me, and I mean, like, look, look, Papua New Guinea's just up the fucking road, mm-hmm. like, relatively speaking.
3: It's hop, skipping, and a jump um, across tip.
2: But even if you've, you've got a civilization that starts at 50 years and then there's another one at 40 and 30 and 20, 20, 20,000 years is still more significant than most populations. So I can understand why they would consider it a bit controversial, but if you look at it, if you divorce all the the spiritual side of it and uh, their belief system and you look at it from a purely scientific perspective, um, waves of immigration does make sense Um, Do you think there was ever uh, cross-pollination with, um, like, uh, the Maori people as well?
3: There's a rather bigger gap between Australia and New Zealand than what there is between, say, Australia and Tasmania or Australia and Papua New Guinea. Because It's a lot further to go. Yeah,
2: I've never looked into it. I don't know whether the Polynesian people, like... New Zealand was their last stop.
3: I'm sure that a couple of them landed on the Australian continent. It's a massive island in the middle of the ocean and being seafaring people, surely they would have come across it a couple of Mm. times. Whether or not there was a cultural cross-pollination or a genetic cross-pollination, I do
2: not know. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I wonder if anyone's going to look into that. I certainly (laughs) won't because I'm no scientist.
3: (laughs) In 2005, an adult skeleton was exposed in the Lake Mungo Strata through erosion, but by late 2006, the skeleton had been destroyed by wind and rain.
2: That's horrid. Yeah. Why, why wasn't he reburied? Why, why didn't they He wasn't
3: him? Ex- excavated because the Aboriginal people didn't want them to excavate him. But they also, I don't want to speak out of tone, but I don't think they quite knew how to preserve it either. They right. didn't have the scientific basis or the scientific know-how to preserve the skeleton in situ. They just figured they'd leave it and the spirits might protect them.
2: Why didn't they rebury it? I don't know. It's interesting. We'd have to look into that.
3: As a result of the loss, the local Aboriginal custodians were given a seven th- hundred thousand dollar grant to improve the conservation of any skeletons, hearths, and middens found eroding in the future. Conservation of these finds is now in situ, with no research permitted without the express agreement of all the local tribes.
2: Yeah, that's why I think like uh, a joint research centre needs to be built on the site. So that what, what they need, you know, and, and this is why um, cooperation is almost always far more agreeable from my, mm-hmm. my point of view.
3: Especially in the scientific community.
2: I can understand why the Aboriginal people would be very hesitant. I, I get it. Yeah. Totally get it. However, if you have, what you have is you have your base scientists and then they, those base scientists offer jobs like, you know, research assistant jobs, to the local peoples so that there can be that cross-pollination of information. I love that word, cross-pollination. So that they can take on Aboriginal students so that they can teach them how to protect their own site. And then eventually you leave them with the, the facility and... You know, obviously some of the, the original scientists can come or, or go. And I'm sure there are plenty of Aboriginal scientists as well who could volunteer to establish this site.
3: You just stole my idea, I was going <laughs> to say. We just take some of the people who from the Aboriginal tribes who want to learn. Yeah. We teach them how to do the archaeological side of it. They can go back to the community. It becomes a completely tribal-run Area, But they have the scientific basis. They also have your education centre. They can make yeah. money from tourism. They can preserve anybody who emerges from the surface. Seems like a win-win to me.
2: Yeah, you could have a, It could be a, just a site for the Aboriginal people to maintain their history while also being able to teach other people mm-hmm. about that history. Uh, my guess is the only thing holding everyone back is money. It's always money. Um, because I know, like, listening to Bones of Contention, uh, they also talked about, like, look, due to uh, climate change, the water's gone, and we need money to establish this site. And, you know, some of the rangers there also said, look, we need an education centre, we need a research facility built. All of those things, um, without a doubt, they are multi, multi-million dollar projects. Yeah, they, It's massive. It's also... It's not a remote remote location, of course. Like Majura, Mildura is just up the road from yeah. it, but it's not.
3: Mildura is not exactly this epicenter of a town.
2: Yeah, so it's it's not like there are great facilities around. But yeah, I just think the problem most likely will be money. It's always money, but so much potential there. It, it makes me very sad to see um, that uh, the skeleton was just eroded um, just because there was a uh most likely a lack of money in order to do proper conservation
3: if you're in australia please send your local politician a let's telling them to pull their heads out their asses and fund it (laughs)
2: look if you're an australian at the moment you like me are probably sick of not only one side of politics you're probably just sick of all of them And i I happen to think all of us could probably do a better job and just because i said that i'm probably on asio's watch list now (laughs)
3: like you weren't before yeah exactly In 2014, as the 40th anniversary of its discovery rocked up, the traditional owners of Willandra Lakes requested to repatriate the remains. We have a clip here.
0: Mungo Man's remains were held at the Australian National University before a 2015 decision to officially hand the body back to traditional owners. Since then, he has been stored at Canberra's National Museum of Australia while discussions between government departments and traditional owners took place to decide his final resting place.
3: So that clip was the news report around people trying to get the remains repatriated. I think it was ABC. It's more than likely ABC. It's the kind of thing ABC would do. Proposals were received for the creation of a facility at Lake Mungo, which would be a keeping place of the remains, allowing it to be repatriated, but also available for study under the control of the local Aboriginal population.
2: Hence the lock and key system. It's the whole idea of it is that no... Everybody
3: has to agree. You can't just go in there and grab
2: it. No one has complete control. So what that means is... Everyone's held to account, mm-hmm. right? So if the scientists want to do something, it forces them to make sure that they have to speak with the Aboriginal elders to make sure they get permission and fully explain what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. It also means that uh, what happened in the case of the um, the skeleton that was allowed to wear away and disappear, it means that uh, the Aboriginal people have assistance in conservation efforts. Yep. So that way both sides have to... I love it. I really do. Like Again, it's, it's a fucking, win-win. It's perfect.
3: Someone sat down and actually thought this shit they out. They did.
2: They did. Like I, I would imagine, some very intelligent uh, Aboriginal elders and some very intelligent scientists came together and were like, "This system will work."
3: I will point out that the people who originally found Mungo Man, they actually have had an active Not active participation, but they've actively tried to maintain their connection with the Aboriginal people and try to work with them, not against
2: them. Yeah, Jim Bowler, um, who's one of those people, and he speaks in uh, Bones of Contention, he is very apologetic.
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
2: And he also talks about the amazing relationship that they now have. Mm -hmm. Uh, he He felt incredibly bad. Uh, that this had happened the way it had happened when the bones were taken. Uh, and he was part of, he actually spoke at the repatriation, uh, ceremony. He actually comes out and he says like, it, it's been wonderful that, you know, we have been forgiven and we're also accepting. And now we've come together to work on this, uh, as it's going to be a project for the ages. It's going to be a project that's going to be significant for all Australians. And that's why it's not a sad story.
3: No, this is like the only win the Australian scientific community and Aboriginal community have together at this point. Yeah.
2: yeah. That's why
3: it's on Weird Crap in Australia because it's the only win that they've got.
2: Yeah, well, it's it's on Weird Crap in Australia. Because it's the oldest. <laughs> well, we love talking about fossils and stuff too. Like it's always, it's fun. But it's one of the oldest living, uh, well, it's one of the oldest living sites when you do have, you know, ancient peoples that are nearly intact. It's mm-hmm. it's. Very rare to find it anywhere else in the world, and we have it here.
3: In 2016, after g- gaining permission from the Willandra area Aboriginal elders, a reanalysis was performed on Mungo Man.
2: Analysis has shown that humans have remarkably little mtDNA sequence variation. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered jumbacasino.com.
3: It's my little escape.
1: Now Judy's the life of the party.
3: Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
1: Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumpaCasino.com That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18
3: plus. Mitochondrial DNA
2: that MT DNA lineages are not, confirmed to specific regions. Sorry, not confined to specific regions, and that the oldest branching lineages are found in East Africa, which we mentioned. Uh, these findings were interpreted as strongly supporting the recent out-of-Africa model. However, this interpretation failed to recognize that the demographic history of a species cannot be inferred from the pattern of variation of a single nucleotide segment. Patterns of variation in different regions of the genome must be considered and interpreted in the context of paleontological and archaeological evidence. Now that was and a, I got through that. Oh, yeah.
3: That was Gregory Addock and et al. Now, Gregory Addock was actually present when Mungo Man was found. Uh, he wrote that paper with some other people, including other founding members, I'll call it, of Mungo Man, in 2001. So, basically, that entire passage is... Yes, Mungo Man has DNA, but so does everyone else. And we can't just work out where they're from and how they got there by looking at one tiny little strand of DNA within a whole nucleotide.
2: To understand the origins of our species, and I'm sorry, uh, the concept of that is probably very confronting to people who have... Uh, spiritual belief, uh, creationists. Uh, And I know we we have a wide group of different people who listen to the show. Um, But me and Holly, we're not spiritual. So we always are going to go from that scientific perspective. Uh, But yeah, to understand the origin of our species, you need to study every culture and every single uh, piece of remain that you can. And then that's when the puzzle comes together, and you can start to see it. But uh, yeah, the the theory there that um, that they put forward, of course, is um, the migration theory, where we start at the the oldest humans are found in the uh, the cradle of the, life, the cradle, in yeah,
3: Ethiopia, yeah, Kenya?
2: and Russia. then humans uh, left that area, migrated outwards. And uh, they evolved, like the human species evolved depending on where they were found. You know, you, some people moved towards Europe where it's very cloudy and it's very dark. And, that's you know, how we got
3: white people. <laughs> and that's how
2: you get white people. And um, some people stayed in Africa and others moved on to, you know, uh, the Himalayas and others went to different continents. And every time we did, we ad- evolved, we adapted uh, to the... Um, uh, to the continent, or if you're creationist, God did you it.
3: Know. <laughs> and for some reason, God made us all look different. Yeah. <laughs> In an attempt to limit these instances of contamination of DNA, Gregory Addick set up strict procedures concerning the samples he was taking from Mungo Man. He and Thorne alone were to handle the samples. Thorn was also another person present originally. To limit any instance of contamination, and their DNA samples were taken in an effort to isolate any external contamination from their handling. So basically, like you're examining a crime scene in a house, you take the occupant's fingerprints because then you can just straight up eliminate them out. Of the 13 samples tested, 10 yielded DNA, with samples taken from the interior of the bones where no one had actually been able to handle or touch them before. No DNA was recovered from the Mungo lady, unfortunately, possibly because of the state of her bones or because she was cremated. Cremation has a habit of destroying everything, including DNA. Yes. Mungo man's mitochondrial DNA signature was unique in the world as it did not match anyone's living or fossil on Earth.
2: So that means they weren't able to find his direct descendants?
3: No. no. There was no direct so, descendants. They couldn't link him to specific tribes. They couldn't link him to anything.
2: Yep. Yeah. Ancient alien. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> I'm sure that theory has been postulated.
3: He was not genetically related to modern African peoples, throwing unsettled human evolutionary theory out of the window. The out of Africa model does not work if you cannot link Mungo Man to Africa.
2: That's interesting, isn't it? Yes. That's basically what that paragraph says. <laughs> I wonder, uh, I wonder if humans different humans were evolving at different times in different species
3: well i think it was about six months ago they started putting forward the theory of out of india
0: oh, where they okay. found
3: um evolutionary dna in india and yep. primates that were evolving in india so whether there was um, convergent evolution going on or not don't know not a scientist haven't read all the papers but it's a possibility and it could have
2: happened with but this they've always speculated that there were multiple different forms of man like oh, obviously oh, many many branches we, we know three uh, you have the you have homo sapien you have the neanderthal uh, and then you have
3: homo erectus the denisovians Theans. you also yep. have all these tiny little branches that peeled off you only have one tiny little bit of skeleton for, so you can't yep. really call them a new species but you'll label it just in case so you can get your name on a file yep You know, that kind of stuff.
2: It's fascinating. It really is. Mm -hmm. It's a a very interesting tapestry. Um, Of course, yeah, when I said, like, everyone comes out of, you know, the cradle of life, uh, obviously that theory just based on Mungo Man could very well be incorrect. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Now, of course, scientists all over the world kicked up a stink over these results when the evidence didn't meet their expectations.
2: It does happen. uh, The scientific community, you need a bit of a bum smack as well. Uh, Scientific community can be just as closed mind. Uh, One thing, though, like uh, what people do confuse sometimes for contention is the fact that a group of scientists will say, "Okay, well, you've got this one outlying case. Uh, we would like to – you need to continue to test to keep proving the theory before it becomes um, part of it. Like, a, uh, you know, some – It's not
3: a one and done. You yeah, have
2: to keep doing it. A lot of famous atheists like to pretend that the scientific community is, is – you know they're 100 open-minded and they'll completely change their their ideas once evidence is presented it's actually a bit bullshit
3: they're humans they're it's human <laughs> they're, they're,
2: they're human they're going to do exactly what humans do it's why like majority of people say the uh, majority of the scientific community say the climate change is a thing and a, a another group of scientists will say it's not there are scientists who say it's not so you know this is what happens. They're not as open-minded as they like to be. So, there you go, scientific community. You're put on watch. Get better.
3: Matthew's going to read all your scientific papers and make sure that you're on point.
2: With yep. All your theories. Now send <laughs> you can send them all to
3: our address. Uh, Inbox us and I'll send you the address. <laughs> in 2017, the remains of Mungo men returned to Lake Mungo, where they were reburied on November 17th. With no funding or agreement on a keeping place for the remains, however, they were buried in the ground within an ancient red gum casket. They are not actually available for study. That's Mungo Lady. She's still in the lock and key at the moment. Unfortunately, Mungo Man has been, well, not unfortunate, unfortunate for scientists. Well, I I think. I think they've got everything I they're going to get out yeah, of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's honestly the truth. That's like, I think, as part of the negotiations when they were back and forth. Uh, I'm sure the Aboriginal people asked them, they're like, what is there stuff left to learn? And I'm sure scientists at the time said, well, we don't think so.
3: If we bury him, are you going to make us unbury him?
2: It, yeah, but that was probably the, you know, and who knows where technology will be, but it could be that technology gets to a point where you don't need to unbury in order to study too. So
3: Well, we have so many different samples from him. Surely they yeah. can find a sample they need and just yeah, look, use a little bit more you've
2: of it. Got you got the DNA, you've got photographic evidence, you've got your bone scans, you have- you,
3: Sight diagrams, you have everything.
2: You've pretty much got everything at this point. I mean, I'm sure they'd like- I'm sure the scientific community would like it just so they have access all the time. Um, but I think Mungo Man did his bit and he, he gets to rest again. I think he- you know what I mean? Like, he did his bit. He did his fair share.
3: Members of the Pakataji, Muthi Muthi and Ngempa cry people- as well as others involved in the repatriation process, were interviewed about doing it. Now, those 12 oral renditions were preserved by Louise Dharmony, becoming part of the State Library of New South Wales Oral Traditions Database. You can actually listen to it if you go to the State Library and you can listen to them. Members of Bowler's 1974 team, which are the, the team that actually found Mungo Man, as well as Bowler himself, were also interviewed. And their interviews were later added to the library's indigenous collecting strategy. So you have all of this oral history you have access to in the data as well now that you can use to contextualize whatever you can get out of Mongo Man. Win-win!
2: Yeah, everyone wins. Uh, We have uh, a quote here to wrap us all up. As the oldest humans ever found down under, the finds were considered so important that the Australian government declared the sandy bone-dry crater that was once Lake Mungo a national park in order to honour and protect the site. To the Aboriginal tribes, the pair became precious symbols of their early people of the, uh, their early peopling of the continent.
3: Now that was by Joseph Diengs and Sean Dungan on August 1, 2002 that's basically the way that the Aboriginal people look at Mungo men and that they are a connection to them and their land. And this is a concrete thing that no one will mm. ever take away from them.
2: Uh, not only that Mungo man, uh, rose from the soil at the time when they needed him and the Aboriginal people have such a tremendous belief in the continent itself, the land itself being a living, breathing thing that, uh, it was Australia that rose him to the surface in order to help those people. Um, Beautiful story. It is actually a wonderful story. I'd, I'd highly encourage people to listen to Bones of Contention. Uh, you can listen to that on the ABC and there are lots and lots of books that have been written about Mungo Man. Um, all worth checking out. Uh, it's a it, Again, it's a beautiful story of cooperation and eventual apology and repatriation it is a really really good story i'd highly encourage you to look into it more
3: if you want to read the scientific papers they're also available mostly online i've actually read four of them in the making of this and they were very interesting yeah
2: so it's definitely worth doing a deep dive on uh if uh if you are interested in human history human uh anthropology anthropology big one All right. uh, To wrap it up very quickly, if you would like to contact us at all, which is uh, some people decide to do it and it's wonderful. We love getting letters from people. You can shoot us an email to weirdcrapinaustralia at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Weird Crap Oz. Uh, You can also find us on Instagram, Weird Crap in Australia, and you can find us on Facebook. We are Weird Crap in Australia. Uh, I apologize for the lack of communication over the last two weeks. We have had nothing but fires. Uh, Last week uh, of this recording, uh, we had to deal with a fire that actually came uh, within a kilometer of our home. Uh, So we're actually preparing to defend our home. And of course, this week as well, there is now a massive fire in the Nugget, Nigami, Nigeri. I can't pronounce it properly. I can't remember. It's a national park. <laughs> it's the massive national
3: park that starts with an N.
2: Uh, that's on the uh, the south of Canberra. Uh, it would have to, it would have to burn through a significant amount of suburbs to get to us, in which case we're in a lot of trouble. Uh, however, it has been very hectic. So if you have shown us through a message or an email and we haven't responded, uh, we will get back to you uh, in time. It's just been incredibly hectic for us. Uh, we've only just sort of had a bit of time to catch our breaths uh, and, uh, and try and get back on track. It's a very, very difficult time for Australians at the moment. Uh, all of our Australian listeners would completely understand that. But uh, yeah, for our international listeners, uh, it is a very, very difficult time here in this country.
3: We did. Get rain, it did not put out all the fires. Yeah. there is a little bit of a misconception there. We are still on fire.
2: Yeah, we are still going. Um, these things, uh, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of rain and and much better conditions.
3: Winter twenty forty, yeah. I'm reckoning.
2: I, as I was uh, saying at the top of this podcast, it's incredibly hot today, and we have a bush, bushfire raging on the uh the south side.
3: Yeah, Namadgi National Canberra. Park. Yeah, it's thirty three thousand hectares.
2: Yeah, like that. it's uh yeah. It's, it's not good here at the moment, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so, yeah, when we do say that we want you to contact us, we absolutely do. It's just going to take time to get back to all of you when you do shoot through your messages.
3: And don't worry, we are safe.
2: We are safe. We're still safe. We're still kicking along. Uh, no
3: fire will defeat me. <laughs> uh,
2: and, yeah, if we have to run, we'll take all our podcasting gear with us. Uh, So, uh, if you would like to support the show and uh, we just got another new Patreon this week, thank you so much. Uh, We're going to have to do a printout of all our Patreon listeners and give you all a shout out on an upcoming episode. Um, But thank you so much if you are a Patreon supporter. Your your contribution is really helping us change uh, the way we operate and hopefully will allow us to expand further and further and further. You know What what that means, right? Mm -hmm.
3: That means our Patreons have now hit double digits.
2: Exactly. We're very, very happy. Um, That's one of the the ways you can directly support the show. And if you do become a Patreon supporter, you can listen to some exclusive content that we've put up there, some behind the scenes of how the sausage gets made. Uh, We've also got a very funny outtake episode in which uh, Blake plays us uh, some of the outtakes uh, and we comment on them. Some are very, very funny, especially coming from Holly. Uh, we've also got two exclusive interviews up there as well that we've done with a uh, paranormal expert, Nicole Overall, and she's also a historian, a writer, a journalist, uh, and there's another interview there as well with David Waldron, uh, who doctor. is Dr. David Waldron. Thank you very much. That's inappropriate for me not to mention the doctor. Uh, he uh, has studied um, mythology, uh, recent mythology, as well as like uh, myth and things like that, both here in Australia and in England, um, and he wrote wrote a book on the uh, Tantaluga. Tantanula. Tantanula Tiger. Um, so he talks a lot about the big cat myth. Um, if you'd like to get those exclusive episodes and uh, there's also some exclusive merchandise, just head to uh, our Patreon site for all of that. Another way you can support the show and get something at the same time is to head to our Redbubble store. You can find that at Uh You can find... Uh, a ton of designs uh, that we've done over the last two years. Uh, Our friend Ignacio has done a substantial amount of those. Uh, You can jump onto that site and you can have any of those designs put on a numerous amount of products from shower curtains to bath mats to phone cases, mugs, magnets, stickers, T-shirts, everything. Um, So you can find all of your weird crap goods uh, at in www.weedcrapinaus.redbubble.com Otherwise folks, we are out of here we will see you again for more weird crap in Australia. Uh, we have uh, something very interesting coming up. We're going back into the world of serial killers for a possible two-parter and that's coming up very soon. so stay weird everyone. stay safe if you are living in uh, some of these bushfire affected areas and we will be back for more weird crap in Australia.
3: Let's go surfing.
2: This has been a production of The Modern Meltdown. For more podcasts just like it, head to themodernmeltdown.net.